turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. AM 1420, The Answer. Thanks so much for joining us on this Monday, or Tuesday, rather, the 12th morning of the second month of the year of our Lord, 2019. A deal has been struck. There will be no government shutdown on Friday. Hallelujah, right? Not so much. The agreement in principle funds the government through September and provides nearly $1.4 billion in money for 55 miles of border fencing along the Rio Grande in Texas. The president wants nearly 200 miles and $5.7 billion. House Freedom Caucus Chairman Mark Meadows. It's not adequate. It's not something that's uh, going to be received well by most uh, Republicans in the House. The plan also calls for a 17% reduction in ICE detention pension bets. Congress has until Friday to pass a deal to avoid another potential partial government shutdown. It's a win-win for the Democrats. It is a loss-loss for the President and for the House Republicans who helped negotiate that mess. Joining us now to analyze that and much more is our friend Peter Kersenow, Peter, a Cleveland attorney, member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, the author of Target Omega and Second Strike, and the president of the Kareem Hunt Fan Club. Peter Kersenow, good morning. How are you, my friend? Bob, I'm doing well, especially because it's official start of spring today. Pitchers and catchers report, and only 44 days until opening day. So I'm psyched. And um, I think, look, everyone deserves a second chance. Cream Hunt led the league in rushing his rookie year. He's only 23 years old. He's a Clevelander. He he, uh, catches uh, passes. This is the last chance for him. If he doesn't stick, you know, if he doesn't keep his nose clean, he's gone. I think he knows that. But if he does do that and we keep him, we've got the most dynamic backfield in all of the NFL. And that's not an exaggeration. I notice how your first <laughs> your first uh, uh, point that you made there, your first bullet point in your analysis, was that he led the NFL in rushing two years ago. Uh, so he deserves a second chance. At least that's how I heard it. What if, what if, what if he rushed for 13 yards two years ago instead of 1,300 yards? Would you be advocating his signing then? Oh, Same circumstances? That, you know, people- get chances in inverse proportion to their suitability and usability. I think everyone knows that. No, I, no I, I'd like to be consistent about it. I do think that people deserve second chances. He's getting a second chance. Uh, and he should know, as Randy Moss and Josh Gordon and a lot of other folks should know, that if they don't uh, you know, live up to what's expected of them, if they you know, mess up again, whether it's spitting on the sidewalk, they're gone. And given the consequences, I mean, here's a guy who could make millions of dollars in um, a profession that he loves, and I'm not sure if he's talented enough to do anything else, frankly, but at least at this level. So he knows what it's up, uh, what's up, and he's got to perform adequately and keep his nose clean. And if he does, you know, look, uh, I don't care if it's giving somebody a second chance as a you know, truck driver, a uh, you name it, uh, any kind of occupation. I believe in giving people second chances. That's, but, yeah, that's but the part, point, Pete. 
I'm, I'm sorry, but that's the part that gotta, matters to me, the fact that, that he's not going to be getting a second jack, uh, chance with a truck company. He's getting a second chance in a, in a league that pays millions and millions of dollars at minimum to their stars and to their players, I should say, and way more than that to their stars. And it's a league in which the employees, or excuse me, yeah, the employees have their posters hanging on kids' walls. Um, you know, it, it should be a privilege, the ultimate of privilege, to play in the National Football League for all of the money, accolades, and fame, and so on and so forth. I think guys like him uh, uh, should probably find out what it's like to work in a position where they're not going to be hanging your poster on the wall. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think, though, that if he does keep his nose clean, then the kids who put posters on their wall see somebody who has rehabilitated himself, has figured out what's the, what the important qualities of life are in managing yourself as an adult human being. Um, and, you know, look, um, I, I don't disagree with your analysis of him, but that, that by the same token, I do think that he deserves to have at least a last chance, as so many other people get. And then, you know, if he doesn't fulfill his uh, promises, expectations, and I don't mean on the football field, I mean in life, then, you know, it, that's up to him. The thing is, their chances are directly proportional, like you said, to talent. Josh Gordon got nine last chances. Uh, he's probably going to get another once he cleans himself up from this most recent uh, problem with the Patriots. If you're good enough and young enough, you'll get more and more last chances. If you're old and on your way out the door anyway, like Ray Rice was, well, that's it. You're done. You've got to go. You can't play anymore. And that's because he was down to three yards a carry. If he was still at four and a half a carry like he was for the first part of his career, he would have been re-signed too. And that's the real troubling part of all that to me uh but let's move off of that Pete Kirsten now let's pivot to the the deal we've been calmed down another another shutdown is coming on Friday we can't have that right well of course we can't so last night the Republicans essentially gave in to the Democrats saying okay uh we'll we'll take only 1.3 billion dollars instead of 5.7 we'll take uh 55 miles of border on a 2,000 mile border between two the two countries and oh by the way we'll also reduce to 40,000 the number of beds that you have in the detention facilities so that once we get over and above that number of illegal aliens coming into the United States or asylum seekers, uh, no more beds. We have to let them go. We have to catch and release them into the American population. Pete, this was a fold as far as I can see by the Republicans. Do you think it's part of a long game maybe that we don't know yet? I don't think so. I don't think it is part of a long game. That's one of the reasons I'm distressed by it. I think that this is bigger than simply who won this particular negotiation, how many beds we get, uh, how much money there is for a border wall, and it's, it's nothing, frankly. Yeah. What this goes to is an overarching question as to who we are as a nation. We have one entire party negotiating on behalf of lawbreakers, on behalf of illegal immigrants, to the detriment of the sovereignty of the United States, the safety of the American people and the economic welfare of the American people. Then we have another party ostensibly standing for the American people, but who fold whenever there's a stiff wind. I don't mean to be excessively harsh, but I don't think I am in this particular case. We get 55 miles of wall. Bob, when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, a friend of mine and I used to have a company where we would erect fences for people. 
you make Tom Curtin and I go out there and put up that fence. We put up 55 miles of a fence a lot faster and a lot cheaper than what the Democrats and the Republicans have just negotiated. This is an atrocity. This is the United States of America, the greatest country in the history of the world. We deserve to preserve our sovereignty, our way of life, the rule of law. And when we have our elected representatives negotiating against our best interests, that's a travesty. We need to replace them. That goes for Democrats as well as Republicans. And the Republicans who sign on to this deal, they have sent a message to those who have elected them. And we should consider that message, what that message should be, and whether or not we want another message. And people who negotiate on our behalf and not sell us out at the drop of a hat. I don't know what we get out of this thing. I don't know what the Republicans think that they get out of this thing other than reopening a dysfunctional government. No thanks. Peter Kirsten, I was our guest. Pete, I want to follow up on that in a moment. We'll take our time out here so that we have more time. By the way, you have experience as a fence builder, and you have not relayed that information to the president. Tracy Lawrence for the U.S. Air Force. We all have tough choices we have to make. Life just works that way. I remember when I was getting ready to move to Nashville to pursue my dream. I packed my 10-year-old Toyota Corolla with 250,000 miles on it and hit the road. It was a tough choice, but the right one for me. If I decided to take what seemed like an easier road, I never would have achieved my dream. You can do anything if you put your mind to it. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Air Force. 1022 now. We continue on AM 1420. The answer with our guest, Peter Kersenow. Peter Cleveland, the attorney, member of the United States on a commission on civil rights. Pete, I want to share with you and with our listeners um, a message that you and I both received from a mutual friend, Jeff Malik, uh, from the Medina County Conservative Coalition. He was talking about a caller to a different radio show that he heard suggesting that instead of President Trump declaring an emergency at the Texas-Mexico border, which would immediately be followed by a court challenge in a court with a judge, essentially, of the liberal challengers choosing. He suggested that Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who is sympathetic to this problem, call a state of emergency in Texas at the border, 1,254 miles, allowing the president to then say, oh, there's an emergency in Texas. We are providing federal funding to build that wall to deal with that emergency in the same way that the government provides federal funding for a lot of emergency declarations uh, asked for and made by governors. Uh, the caller suggested that if this funding is challenged legally, it would have to be challenged in Texas and thus end up in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals instead of the Ninth Circle of Hell in California or out in Hawaii or wherever else they may go. He then suggested that Governor Doug Ducey in Arizona follow suit and then uh, have the president come to the aid with more federal funding for about 1,600 more miles, or, uh, or I'm sorry, the total about 1,600 miles of border wall. Uh, can that work from a legal perspective, Pete, to your understanding? Yeah, Jeff always gives me kind of all this homework to do, and I don't have time to do it. Um, so let me just, and I, and I have not researched it, but let me just look at it from a common sense perspective. First of all, yes, governors can declare emergencies, and every state has got their own procedure and protocol by which emergencies are declared. And usually in the case of disaster relief, there's either some form of natural disaster in the form of a hurricane or there's an epidemic. For example, there was an H1N1 disaster or emergency declared when um, I think it was, I don't remember the states, but there are some states because of the flu epidemic declared uh, emergencies. And when a state, pursuant to its protocols, declares an emergency, there can be an appeal to the federal government, either through FEMA or DHS or through HHS. 
to receive some type of disaster relief, and the president has fairly broad-ranging authority to provide disaster relief aid, but and, and it's not as circumscribed as simply going ahead and trying to build a wall using national emergency authority on his own. However, there are limitations. There's usually time limitations. There has to be a recertification of the disaster, typically within 30 days. So you're not going to be able to build a wall in 30 days. And that recertification has to run through Congress. So that is probably one of the impediments. I'm not sure if if the manner in which a declaration would be declared in the instance described by Jeff would have to go through the same hoops. But my sense is there would be, if not the same hoops, similar hoops. Um, I like the idea. I think that it's not as simple as the caller uh, that Jeff refers to um, might think it is. But you've got, you know, the Stafford Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance Act and other acts that might be employed. The one caveat, well, one of the caveats I have is, as I said at the outset, typically this is done in the case of a natural disaster or an epidemic, although there are... Well, this is a natural disaster, though, isn't it, Pete? I mean, do, do, do tsunamis count? Because there's a tidal wave of illegals crossing our border and causing all kinds of havoc in our, in our country. So to me, it is a natural disaster, and it can be recertified every 30 days. As long as we haven't finished the wall, they're still coming across that border in the unfinished area, so we have to continue to recertify until all of it is walled off. Look, I happen to think that it is a disaster. I think that it has significant impact. I mean, as you know, you and I have been on this for a long, long time. I've been involved in this. However, and it's good polemics. However, I don't know, even in the Fifth Circuit, that a judge is going to be persuaded by that. I think he's going to take a more definitive look on the definition of disaster. Typically, it's been in the context, as I indicated, of a natural disaster, hurricane, uh, a health epidemic. Uh, Yes, we could probably marshal significant arguments in terms of crime, uh, in terms of the environment, in terms of all manner of things, the the burden on public infrastructure and public treasury. But those are clearly of a different ilk than the disasters normally declared through the course of American history. I'm not trying to discount this. I mean, I like almost any idea that we can come up with that results in the construction of a wall, but the question was asked. And if I look at it in the light of cold, hard uh, day, I would say that it's a stretch. I would think that there are multiple challenges that still stand in the way. I like the innovative nature of it, and I don't say I wouldn't necessarily dismiss it right out of hand, but um, typically these disasters also have monetary limitations, such as a $5 million limitation, then then if it goes beyond that, you've got to get authorization or reauthorization from Congress. So there are limitations on the manner in which disasters may be addressed by the state and then asking assistance from the federal government. It can be done. I still think that, you know, there's going to be multiple challenges to it. I mean, I understand that if you do it in Texas, it goes to a more sympathetic court. But regardless of how sympathetic the court is, there's also something called the rule of law. And I'm not sure that all the traps can be adequately run to call a disaster for purposes of funding a wall. If it can be done, I'm all for it. I think, and I think the president, frankly, would utilize almost every resource possible or examine every avenue possible to get a wall built. Yesterday, for example, after this ridiculous supposed deal was tentatively struck, the president said during his rally, 
uh, in El Paso that I understand that they have the tenor of a deal, but he said, no matter what it is, we're going to get the wall built. Now, you talked about a long game. The president understands that the wall is his signature promise, and a pathetic $1.4 billion is not what he was looking for. Just a year ago, we were talking about $25 billion. Also, a curb to beds is probably the biggest slap in the face because we can't then detain illegal criminal aliens. 86% of those detained by ICE have criminal records here in the United States. I mean, it's astonishing. And the Democrats want to limit the number we can detain and therefore release these criminals who don't belong in the country in the first place into the population of the United States of America. This is a travesty. We've got to do something about this. I, when you talk about a long game, Bob, I don't know that the president has a specifically delineated long game strategy, but my sense is that he is very skeptical of 1.5 billion, 55 miles of fencing, a reduction in beds. This, uh, the, the folks who negotiated this, all due respect, they should have walked away from the table. This is a non-starter. There are times when you simply don't reach an agreement for the sake of reaching an agreement, and they're so petrified of a government shutdown. The polls look bad for them, apparently. You know what? There are things more important than polls. Republicans always are looking for the next poll and the next election. Say, you know, believe us, we're going to do the right thing the next time we get elected. We just need a majority. And every time they do that, we don't get any further along. It's about time we stood on principle. This is one of the reasons why we have Donald Trump. It's time to fight harder. And I would assert we can get more. Peter Kirsten now laying it out for us. Uh, Pete has been kind enough to grant us a third segment, so we're going to take a break here, get our news, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Green New Deal put forth by AOC and her band of lunatics, and also about the blackface controversy in Virginia and nationwide. Peter Kirsten now obviously in a unique position to be able to discuss that with us. We'll do so after this on AM 1420, The Answer. There are two sides to every story. There's the mainstream media side, and then there's the truth. You are experiencing the truth. The Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed. And we do continue now at 1035 with Peter Kirsten, now kind enough to grant us one more segment of his wisdom. Peter, of course, is a Cleveland attorney, a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He is the host of the Kirsten Hour Report you hear uh, throughout the day on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, Pete, um, the uh, terms of the Green New Deal, as released late last week, uh, obviously I have not had a chance to talk to you about because we spoke on Tuesday. Um, apparently they've been changed a little bit. The Green New Deal put forth by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez apparently co-sponsored at least the resolution. It's not a bill yet. But uh, she says 70 Democrats are ready to co-sponsor this, which means they're all excited for it. And uh, at least four at the time, there were four major candidates for president, all of whom say they endorse this as well. Um it is some insanity. Um, in addition to getting rid of all fossil fuels, 
thus making every internal combustion engine in America obsolete. In addition to taking down every building in America and either retrofitting it or demolishing it and rebuilding it with green energy uh, capabilities, renewable energy capabilities, uh, in addition to ending air travel, uh, because uh, that would require fossil fuels because you cannot build a, a solar cell big enough to power an airplane and keep it on that plane. We're going to have high-speed rails all around the country and even across the ocean to other continents. Um, this is the insanity of the left. Oh, by the way, we're going to guarantee uh, income, uh, economic security for all Americans, including those who are not able to or who are unwilling to work. Now, that's just a little tiny scratching of the surface of what's in this mess, Peter Kirshenau, and I'll just let you take it from there. Bob, a couple of observations with respect to this. It is insanity. It's laughable when you read certain provisions of it. You actually do laugh out loud. It's it's that ridiculous. But uh, I think it's important for all of us to take this very seriously for the reasons that you just mentioned, that four of the presidential candidates signed on to it, nearly 70 Democrats signed on to it, and that's only those who had the ability to sign on before the widespread ridicule um, was levied upon it. But if you look at certain moments in history, I'm not saying this is a particular inflection point, I'm not to make uh, a comparison, I'm just saying that the reason why this should be taken seriously is because as lunatic as it appears, half of our Congress believes in this, whether they've articulated it, or um, as some of them have, or not. Uh, and you could look back in moments in history when certain events appear to be, or movements appear to be implausible, because they were ridiculous, they were laughable, or their leaderships had their leadership had no power, or were ridiculous. Uh, I get, I guarantee you that after the 1905 revolution, the Romanovs believed that Trotsky and Stalin were ridiculous and didn't have any power. And then millions of lives later, we see that in fact they did acquire power. So you see movements that appear at the at the fringes of the polity and don't appear to have any saliency. If you don't maintain your vigilance, who knows what can happen. I'm not saying that this, this thing is going to get passed, but some parts of this, if there are Democratic majorities in Congress and you have a president like a Kamala Harris, will get passed to our detriment. And the, the other thing about this, the other observation about this is um, this is really an indictment of where we are in terms of our educational system and our culture. That it, it, it posit from think back to the the evil founding fathers who put together a constitution that is a remarkable document of genius, and then you fast forward to this thing. We didn't have public education back when the Founding Fathers created the Constitution or when the Federalist Papers were written by Hamilton, Jay, and Madison, and when the Declaration of Independence was penned principally by a couple of people, including Jefferson. But, my goodness, with all this public education, with Ocasio-Cortez's ostensible degree from Boston University, she comes up with something that is not even suitable for Mad Magazine or The <laughs> Onion. 
I'm not exaggerating, Bob. You know that's true. No, I know you're not, but I've never heard anybody use the Mad Magazine reference there. That's perfect. Thank you. Yeah, many of us have said that The Onion should be out of business because they can't parody anything anymore. And this is true. This is beyond parody. If The Onion had published this or Mad Magazine or somebody else, you'd go like, well, you know, they, they've, they, they're, they're out of business. You know, they've, they've jumped the shark. But this is what passes for a sober, considered political thought in our country today. That's extremely problematic. It's not going to go anywhere now, but components of it could go somewhere. That's why we always have to exercise vigilance, as absurd as this is. So the other thing about this is from a tactical perspective, and I know Republicans have been doing this, but I urge them to do it a little bit more vigorously and um, more tactically and strategically, is that there's so much here to hang around the necks of progressives so they can't escape. They've made this public declaration now, and many of them have publicly signed on to it, so every single one must be held to account on this. We know the press won't do it for us the way they do it when a Republican does something that isn't even remotely as ridiculous as this. I mean, they would have town halls, they would be asking every other Republican who didn't sign on to defend it, and so on and so forth. Well, because the press is not going to do that, they're simply going to provide cover to Democrats Republicans have got to do the heavy lifting by every single time they appear on television, radio, any sort of medium. Anytime they're in a public forum with another Democrat, they have to be asking the questions about this and not let it go. This was a document produced by a member of Congress. It's out there. And several people who are presidential candidates signed on to it. Do not let it go. It's an instructional opportunity on the part of Republicans. It's a political opportunity on the part of Republicans. And it's necessary to protect the United States of America. Otherwise, we're beyond socialism. I mean, I don't even know what you call this lunacy, but we're well beyond that. Pete, I want to grab uh, one other um, your thoughts on one other issue before you go, because our time is short here. And I want to get your thoughts on what's going on in Virginia. There's three names, obviously. There's the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the uh, attorney general, all facing various scandals. Uh, Northam, of course, should be facing the scandal for suggesting that babies be aborted after birth, after they are born, when they are newborn human beings breathing air. Uh, we'll have a conversation while we keep the baby comfortable. We'll have a conversation with the mother to decide whether or not the baby should be able to live or die. But that uh, that controversy wasn't enough to sink him. It took the yearbook photo with the blackface or the uh, Klansman outfit, whichever one he was. Uh, of course, his uh, attorney general came out and said, Me too! I did it too. I dressed like Michael Jackson once, or no, I'm sorry. He did the, uh, he did the Curtis Blow. He did the, uh, uh, the, the rapper thing where he and his friends dressed like uh, rappers and blackfaced, uh, for a party. And then, of course, Justin Fairfax facing far more serious charges, too reportedly credible, although I will not judge that for him any more than I did for Brett Kavanaugh, but two reportedly credible, uh, accusations of sexual assault and or rape going on there. And, uh, Democrats, are apparently unable to move any of them to resign, and uh, they're going to remain in power. What is your opinion of that? And I had a friend tell me that he thinks two of them have to survive. One of them will be sacrificed, but two of them have to survive so that a Republican wouldn't be the next in line for the governorship if the other one something happens to the lone, uh, you know, the last man standing. So um, do you think any of them will be forced from office? And if there is a sacrificial, sacrificial lamb, which of them will it be? Well, I think that Fairfax is toast. Uh, the the accusations against him, you know, look, I think everybody is entitled to, as people say, due process. We're cognizant of what happened to Kavanaugh. So you don't have unsubstantiated claims, but you've got two claims that merit consideration. 
Um, especially that second one, which was said, or the mention was made of the alleged rape contemporaneously with it happening. A number of people were told about it. And, uh, you know, I understand that Fairfax's law firm uh, suspended him pending an investigation. This is being taken seriously. I think that if push comes to shove, what will likely happen is Northam would probably, or uh, Northam survives. They try to get the attorney general to resign and get Northam to appoint a clean, quote-unquote, Democrat to that position so that when Fairfax is compelled to resign and Northam resigns, you still have a Democrat there and it doesn't go to the Speaker of the House. I don't know if that's the way the lines of succession work in Virginia, but I can't believe the Democratic Party in Virginia is going to allow power to be given up regardless of what these three individuals have done, because power is key to them. It exceeds everything else. Principle be damned. Um, We do have a couple of instructional moments, and that is that we're talking about, with respect to blackface, comparative triviality on uh, an enormous scale when when you consider what Northam originally became famous for, and that is, as you just described, his clinical cool comments about the murder of babies. It was an extraordinary thing that's getting very little attention, none whatsoever in the mainstream press, and yet we're diverted on something that is, again, in comparison, extraordinarily trivial. I I hope, nonetheless, that it does have an effect because this is the way the Democrat has created these various standards. They come up with these lunatic standards that you have to abide by, uh, and then they don't live by them. But, you know, the whole thing with respect to blackface is simply just in emphatic representation of what the Democratic Party has been trying to scrub for 200 years, and that is the Democratic Party is the party of segregation, of slavery, of Jim Crow, so on and so forth, on and on and on. And yet because of tremendous historical jujitsu, they've been able to establish themselves, at least among their friends in the press, as being the party of civil rights when nothing could be further from the truth. Look, uh, this is a moment that Republicans need to seize on, yeah, from a raw political imperative, but also because it's instructional. I think we have to exhibit the hypocrisy where it is. But more importantly, again, do not miss the big picture of his advocacy for the murder of babies. This is an extraordinary moment in the United States of America when the leader of an entire state says, you know what? We can murder babies after they're born if it's inconvenient. Um, that's not the country we grew up in, Bob. No, Pete, it's really not. And um, and, and that should be the focus uh, of, of Ralph Northam. But I want to ask you, just for your opinion on something else, Pete, um, an African-American friend of mine named Khalid Namar, who does a, a co-host the Todd Allen Show on Sunday nights now on this uh, this station, and Samuel Lockhart, Airman Pastor Lockhart, uh, both uh, joined me for a conversation on this last week, and I want to get your opinion as a man of color as well. Um, on blackface, in general, forget about Northam for a moment, is it ever acceptable? And what I mean by that is um, we have seen caricatures that were intended to essentially mimic or mock the minstrel shows that are so terribly offensive. For example, Northam's picture in the yearbook was clearly, you know, with the bow tie and the clown outfit and the black face, it was clearly an homage to the black Sambo, which is highly offensive. But what I want to know is, is it ever okay to put on an outfit, for, for example, for a costume party or whatever, to actually try to look like someone that you admire? 
Um, and, and, and what I mean, you know, the two examples that, that come right to mind are um, Joy Behar on The View, who is the uber-liberal, let's impeach Trump right now, yesterday woman, uh, admitted to and actually showed a photo of her dressed up as just a uh, an anonymous African-American woman. She wanted to look black for whatever her event was, so she darkened her skin, she said, and, uh, you know, got a, a wig and so on and so forth. And she's fine. Megyn Kelly offered a, a, a hypothetical saying, is it really terrible and wrong if you really admire Diana Ross to want to look like Diana Ross for an event? If you dress like Diana Ross and, and, and darken your skin to look like Diana Ross, who is beautiful, is that terrible? She was fired for being insensitive to the history of blackface. So I talked about that with these two gentlemen last week. What do you say about it today? Well, we're going through evolutions and have gone through an evolution in this country as to what's acceptable and not acceptable based on race, gender, ethnicity. We're now in the hyper-social justice era. And regardless of, in absolute sense, something would be considered offensive or is acceptable, in today's environment, better or worse, it's not acceptable. You can't do it. Or if you want to do it, you see what the consequences are with respect to Megyn Kelly or anyone else. You, you simply can't do it. But Not anyone it, else. Not anyone else. Well, Only conservative-minded exactly right. people, it would appear. Exactly right. Joy Behar, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, and others who have done this on a, on a regular basis for their TV shows are just fine and dandy. Yeah, but they can't do it now. None of them would dare do it now. As I said, we're going through an evolution, and even as recently as, say, five years ago, a Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel and all these other alleged social justice warriors could get away with it, and also because, as you just indicated, they're on the right side, supposedly. But even they can't do it now, and I suspect that at some point we're going to get past this particular evolution. But yeah, blackface at one point was extremely offensive. It was meant to denigrate. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in many other circumstances, it was not. There are two sides to everything. There's the person who intends to offend, and I think, look, if we're human beings, we try to be, let's face it, non-offensive. We don't go out of our way, and as conservatives, we try to be polite, considerate to others. We don't give unnecessary offense, regardless of the reason for it, whether it be race, sex, ethnicity, whomever, whatever it is. We, we try not to do it. By the same token, there's another side to the equation, and that is the person who is quote-unquote triggered by it, and we are getting so hypersensitive in this country. It is just ridiculous. You get the heckler's veto based on microaggressions. Microaggressions. I think it would be nice if everyone took a deep breath, paused, and started treating everybody as fellow human beings and not as members of particular identities or groups. We do much better. We are Americans. We are human beings first. We're Americans. And we should stop trying to segregate ourselves into distinct groups and declare war against one another. So just act in natural Christian fashion. Be charitable toward your fellow man. Don't do things that give unnecessary offense. Think twice before you do something. And by the same token, if you're somebody whose skin is so thin that you're going to be offended by somebody in blackface, take another deep breath, okay? Pause for a moment before you go out there and try to destroy the person's job. Pete, I respect the gesture, but you're asking Democrats to not be Democrats. You're asking dogs to not be dogs. You're asking, I mean, you can't ask an animal to not be an animal. You can't ask a, I mean, in, in all seriousness, uh, you know, you're, you're saying don't, I don't, uh, lump people in together as, as identities. That is demo, not democracy. That is Democrat politics. That is what they live on. It's what they thrive on. Identity politics is their calling card. You're asking them to not be themselves. That's their calling card because if you look at their ideas, it ends up being the Green New Deal. That's what you get. They have no ideas. 
So they've Bring got to rely back. on identity politics, Bob. You're exactly right about that. But I'm just saying, look, let's make an outreach to fellow human beings. Act sensible for once. Very well said, Peter Kirsten. Now, Peter, thanks so much for putting in the extra time, my brother. We'll talk to you again real soon. Thanks, Bob. You got it. Peter Kirsten now joining us on AM 1420. The answer, we'll get out, we'll check, uh, check our traffic one final time, and then we'll come back in and try to get a call or two before the top of the hour on AM 1420. The answer. Bible. Final segment of the show is a short one at 10.55 as we get you ready for Mike Gallagher on AM 1420, The Answer. Really, really great guest today, and I want to say thank you so I don't forget at the end to uh, Congressman Jim Jordan, to uh, Dr. Everett Piper, the uh, uh, president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, and also, of course, to Peter Kersenow. Uh, tremendous insight from all of them. And if you missed this uh, uh, little mini-announcement, um, I'm so privileged, privileged and pleased to have Dr. Piper sign on to be a regular guest of this program. He's going to be on every Monday at 10.05. He'll have a standing appointment there. Benchmark it. Uh, write it down. Uh, he was terrific. And I had a lot of people saying, oh, my God, I love listening to that guy. When's he going to be on again? That's your answer. Every Monday at 10.05, we'll have Dr. Piper on sharing his wisdom. Rocky River, that's Brian. You're on AM 1420, The Answer. Good morning, Brian. Go ahead, sir. Hey, thanks, Bob, and another great show. But I'll do a quick, uh, with Puerto Rico as a territory, I presume, mm-hmm. and with all the labor down there and all what's going down there, I'm down there, well, why wouldn't they be in the churches here in uh, Northeast Ohio be outraged by having not the wall and having all the Mexicans, uh, Mexico descent, flood the country where they are part of the our, our country. What's your take on that? Uh, I'm not quite sure I understood the question. I apologize. Could you try that again? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, I know you said Puerto Rico's a territory, and and uh, but I, but you lost me as far as what about Puerto Ricans and and, and working down there. I, I'm not quite sure what you meant. Well, well, instead of running, you know, across the border, we uh, uh, of course fly them here to uh, America mm-hmm. uh, as our labor force instead of you know. Uh, uh, going with the the Mexican government, letting them uh, send their labor force. Oh, okay. So you're saying if there if there is a shortage of workers in the United States in our, our yeah. mainland, uh, and we need more people to come in and do jobs that are maybe less than uh, um, enticing to Americans, instead of uh, relying on uh, migrant farm workers coming from Mexico, especially some of them illegally, why don't we just uh, bring Puerto Rican uh, people in and, and have them do that work? That that what you're saying? Well, Yes, and they're here anyways in our school system, and uh, and, and they are part of our community. That's they are, yes, they are. So, yeah, I, so I, I don't, I don't know the answer other than to see, you know, to me, Brian, these kinds of things should happen organically. Uh, in other words, if there was a de- a, a, a strong demand um, on on the part of of you know Puerto Rican nationals who are who are citizens of the United States and who have voting rights and so on and so forth if um if there is a strong demand for them in the in the population to want these jobs i just have the feeling they would be saying i'm come going to the mainland united states and i'm going to work uh and i'm going to do these jobs um my suspicion is that the reason they don't in mass numbers is because uh, you know they they would expect a fair wage they would rightfully so of course and they would be right to expect a fair wage whereas the illegals who come across from the Mexico come across the uh, our southern border from Mexico or from other places through Mexico 
you know, they have uh, they don't they don't accept or they I mean they'll work without fair wages. They'll work for below minimum wage. They'll work for cash under the table. Uh, and not have to worry about taxes and so on and so forth and not wanting to get caught. So that's probably the reason why there aren't any more uh, from other you know, U.S. territories wanting to come in and take those jobs. Thanks for the call. Thanks again to my wonderful guests. Thanks to our staff. Thanks to you for listening. Mike Gallagher's next. We'll see you tomorrow. Enjoy the silence.